Oh man, we're in our new series from the book of James called Get Out There. And you might not get out there like that, but I guess the tra it's not trash day. Last week we saw a little kid fighting with a trash can trying to get it in and he was having a tough time. I don't know if you got to watch any of the inauguration of our new president this past week. It was really quite fascinating. I mean, all the security measures taken to protect and defend our outgoing president and our incoming president from danger or from harm and all of the protocol that must have gone into who stands where, who sits where, what order are people going to be in and, and uh, all of the beautiful people in their splendid outfits ready for outside overcast winter weather in Washington or the rain and, uh, or then to move indoors and to be ready for that too. All the speeches and philosophies and points of view, all the prayers I was especially impressed with the number of prayers that uh, had included Jesus' name in the public square, you know? All the making of music and festivities. Uh, you know, of course, all that's the pomp and circumstances. The only moment that really mattered was the actual swearing in of the new president into office. And uh, which he did by placing his hand on the Bible. Actually, he employed two Bibles. He had his uh, mother's uh, RSV Bible, and he had President Lincoln's Kingeth Jameth Bible. And, um, you know, why take the oath of office with your hand on a Bible? Basically, it's saying that the Bible is your foundation, your guiding light. It's the most reliable source of truth. It's pure and it's holy. Even if you are not, you are saying, I'm going to attempt to live up to uh, the principles of God's Word. Now, two Bibles, by the way, aren't stronger than one because the Bible is God's Word. And uh, the God's Word spoke the world into existence. And uh, Jesus is God's Word. And so you really just need one, but uh, there were two there. And so... You know, James actually talks about how to swear in. You could read ahead in chapter 5 if you wanted and uh, might have some ideas for you to think about in light of what we've just seen. Now, God's Word is true. It's reliable. It's the foundation of our faith as Christians. It's our guide for our faith, and it's how we practice our faith. And, you know, you can find Bibles in thousands of hotel rooms, in thousands of hotels. It's the best seller every year. There's a zillion of them in different versions in English. You can find them in all shapes and all sizes. You can find them leather-bound or paperback. You can get the Bible on your smartphone, and I hope that you do some of those things. And, and we even put out a chart of Here's how to read, because you can read five chapters a day and read the whole Bible in a year. You can hear the Word of God spoken, preached, recited on radio, TV, and on the Internet 24-7, 365. It's everywhere. But most people miss out on the benefits of the Bible. Why? This could be true of the new president. It can be true of you. I mean, you know why? You don't receive the benefits of God just because you own a Bible or just because your mother owned one or just because it was in your family somewhere or just because you could put your hand on one. The Bible promises forgiveness and peace and power and purpose and wisdom and strength and hope and happiness and more. But the sad truth is you can have a Bible but not get any of its benefit. So we've been studying this little love letter that's in the Bible from a pastor named James, and the book is named after him, and some of his church members have moved away because they're under intense persecution just because they're Christians, and so they have moved out of town, and he is writing them in this letter to encourage them to stay strong in their faith, and we're looking at the first chapter, James 1, we're starting verse 19 to 27. 
James is a pretty practical person, a pretty practical pastor, and he gives us three keys to unlock God's Word into our lives. In fact, the main verse we're looking at is verse 25, which says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The Bible is called the perfect law because it's exactly what we need. It promises freedom and it promises blessing. And so James gives us three keys. The big question we're looking at today is, how do you get the maximum benefit out of your Bible? And key number one is, receive it with humility. Receive it with humility. Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The phrase, receive with meekness, is a Greek term for hospitality, which means to welcome, come in. I mean, do you welcome God's word into your life, or do you tolerate it? Is it a chore? My dad added some of God's Word to every meal that we ever had as a family. He would whip out his New Testament. He always had one in his pocket. And he would open to a certain passage, usually a chapter, and he would read it. And he wouldn't be in a hurry. And um, he would read it out loud. And he would probably, wouldn't need to actually look at it. He probably had it memorized because he was always reading the Bible. And he had read it so many times. And he loved those moments. And he cherished them. And after Scripture, then we would sing a related song. Actually, he would start clapping a song, and you were supposed to figure out what song it was based on the rhythm of the clap. And, and then we would have a prayer. And you just knew at the end of the meal, you didn't jump up from the table. The meal wasn't finished until we had fed on God's Word. So well, I want to encourage you, make reading God's Word part of your daily habit. If it doesn't fit in at a meal, where does it fit in? If you don't have a plan, it won't fit in anywhere. You'll get to the end of the day and realize, oh, we never opened God's Word today. And day after day after day can go by like that. And so we just need to make a daily habit. Look at the next phrase. James says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Well, meekness is a word, a word of humility, but the implanted word, it's, it's a word picture of garden and some seeds. All throughout the Bible, God's Word is compared to seed that gets planted in the soil, the soil of the human heart. Jesus even told stories of a sower who went out to sow the seed, and uh, he, as he tossed it out, some landed on the path and got trampled. Some grew up and was choked by weeds. Some didn't get a deep root, and so it was um, burned by the sun and withered. And then some produced a harvest of 30 or 60 or 100 times what was planted. That story is found in Matthew 13 and in Mark 4 and in Luke chapter 8. And some flourished and bore seed over a hundred times. The seed is the Word of God. The soil is your heart. What's the difference? Because the seed is all the same. Why is it some people can walk out of church and tell their preacher, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. And the next person in line can say, preacher, that was the most average sermon I have ever heard. And the next guy on the line can say, you need help. That was boring. And you talked, but you didn't say anything. 
That third person probably referred to himself as a pessimistic realist. The difference isn't the Word of God. The difference is in the preparation of the garden where the seeds get planted. It was implanted in you. So how was your preparation on your garden of your heart this morning? I'm not putting you on the spot. You don't have to tell me out loud, but James tells his readers to, what to do to get their hearts ready to receive from God. Look at verse 19. Be quick to hear. In other words, listen. If you're talking, you're not listening. Slow to speak, to pause and to relax. Sometimes when somebody's talking, we're, we're eagerly thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Rather than just, what are they trying to tell me? To take a little more time, to be slow to anger, to take a breath. You know, when somebody's getting angry or you could tell, even before they say anything, anger throws up a barrier and it makes communication more difficult. And what we usually get angry about is that something disappointed us. It didn't go our way. Compare that to Jesus. What did Jesus get angry about? That God's name was, was, not, was being taken in vain or that God's house was being desecrated. His anger was, was about what God was, how God was being treated, not how he himself on this earth was being treated. So our anger is so often about me and his anger was about how do I uh, adhere and uh, make God's name more precious and keep it that way. James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Are you doing things you know are not God's desire? Then stop it. Delete them from your life. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, the first step is to say, I am doing sin and it's not right. And confess it to God and ask Him to forgive. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin can act like a blood clot in your heart, and it can block you from God's blessings. In fact, it can kill you altogether. James says, verse 21, be humble and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So, Look back, how did you get here today? Was it calm and relaxed and, and you got here prepared and ready to hear God speak through His Word? Or was it a push, a rush, a, a, a family fight, an adrenalized dash just to make it on time? And then think, well, now we're ready to receive God's Word. All right? Maybe we need to take a little more time. James says to slow down and to receive it with humility. But just receiving it's not enough. Look what James says for key number two. Reflect on it sincerely. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and what he looks at himself and he goes away and at once he forgets what he's like. Isn't it kind of cool that Tandy can't remember what he doesn't remember? <laughs> no, he's not even thinking about it anymore. And, and I like that, but it's true of a lot of us, huh? We, and he's saying, if you look in the mirror and then you didn't do anything, you didn't fix anything, you just gave the mirror a glance, you didn't give it a gaze, you know, you didn't peer into the mirror, you just kind of saw one was there, and nothing changed, then what help was it? My mom, last year before she died, told a story about a month before she died. She told this story on herself. And Cindy and I are still discussing or debating whether it was a real event or whether my mom was pulling our leg. 
But I might have told you this story before, but it fits in right here because she said, you know, I was in, I think it was Walmart, and I'm getting in line, and just as I got in line, I happened to glance at the line next to me, and there was a little old lady getting in that line at the very same time. And I took a quick look at her, and then I thought, wow, you know, she's older than you are. She has more wrinkles than you do and more gray hair. In fact, she's a little fatter than you are too and doesn't smile as much. And then my mom thought, well, I should look back and make sure. So she looked back at the woman, and she said, much to my surprise, I was looking in a mirror. That was me. I'm looking at me. The Bible is like a mirror. We look into God's Word to see what we really look like. And we use a mirror to check ourselves, and you know, I have, a, I have a mirror in my office, and people come in and sit down and talk to me. Pretty soon you can tell when all of a sudden I've watched dozens of people do this. They suddenly, they start looking in the mirror, they're looking at themselves, they're making sure they, you know, things are just exactly right, you know, and everything's fine. And, and I'm watching this whole thing, and then, oh yeah, oh yeah, they're actually in a conversation, and then they come back. You know, it's, it's like they forgot I was there, and... and um, well, some people have mirrors that actually enlarge your face and they have lights next to it so you can really get a full gaze. No, no, those aren't a mirror that you just take a glance, are they? Those are ones that you are looking, looking to fix things. Did you notice that when they, the president and first lady finally had a private moment and got into the limousine that you could kind of see through the glass? And guess what? One of them put on some lipstick. I'm assuming it was the first lady, okay? But somebody got out a little mirror, looked in the mirror, and then fixed their perfect face. Um, uh, you know, the, the Bible is a mirror. I mean, have you ever read the Bible and said, hey, that's me. He's talking about me. I'm like that. That's exactly what we're supposed to do. In fact, the Bible says the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, the discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, sometimes we don't look in this mirror. We don't read the Bible because we know it would tell us something that we need to change about ourselves. Sometimes we think, I know it all. Why would I need to look in the mirror again? Well, it might mean you have to change if you finally get around to reading it. God could use this to say, hey, psst, there's egg on your face. You need to fix such and such. Did you notice? And if you let God's Word get into you and get a hold of your heart, it could cost you something. But in the end, you'll say, it's worth it. I really came out ahead because now I have a relationship with Jesus that's deeper and more meaningful, and I know more about him, and I love him more, and I trust him working in my life. The psalmist understood this. Way back, the book of Psalms starts with Psalm 1, but it sets a great tone for the whole book. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Would that be you? Is he talking about you? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalmist gives us this picture of a person who delights in the Lord, who looks forward to reading God's Word, who meditates on it day and night. I mean, he's thinking about it. He's pondering what God's telling him in His Word. It dominates his thought when, when he's daydreaming. His heart has been permeated by the Word of God. It can't, but help, help, positive, it can't help but positively direct his thinking and his decision-making and overflow into his conversations. You squeeze him and it just comes out. Compare that to the Jewish scholars that Jesus is arguing with on the Temple Mount during his ministry. They spent their lives reading the Scriptures, memorizing every word. They knew it backwards and forwards like a good lawyer knows his case. Kind of an oxymoron, huh? But Jesus said to them, you're looking for a way to kill me because my word is not in you. The Bible is God's Word. Jesus is God. He authored the book. These people spent their lives studying, and Jesus says, my Word is not in you. It's only gotten into their head and not into their hearts. They didn't receive it. They didn't reflect on it. They didn't respond to it in faith and obedience. How sad. They missed the whole point. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, is God's Word unleashed in your heart and in your life? Reflect on God's Word. Get into it in your heart. Do it daily by yourself. Do it together with those in your house. Every week with friends in one of the Sunday school classes, Bible studies, the growth groups, I thought it was so cool. They're all linked together, whether they're sermon-based where they take this message and the notes that you have already in your hand and talk about those and go deeper in God's Word, or whether they're studying some other Bible passage or some other topic. It doesn't matter. Getting together with God's people, getting circled around God's Word, saying, what's God trying to say to us, helps us grow in it. James is saying, here's the point, look into the mirror of God's Word. Word, and don't just walk away and forget everything. Change what you need to change. Slow down and receive it with humility. And besides receiving it, take time to reflect on God's Word and persevere. Keep doing that over and over and over and over, and you'll be blessed, but it's not enough. Look what he says next. Key number three, verse 25, respond to it obediently. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, but no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is giving us the picture of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, somebody who reads God's Word, and they, as they read it, God convicts them that here's what my Word says, and here's how you're living, and they repent. Repent means to change direction. Some people need to repent 180 degrees. Some people need to repent two degrees. All of us need to repent some and to turn to God. He's saying, read the perfect law. This is the law of liberty. It truly sets you free from the power of sin in your life. And then remember it and live it. It's not just for Sunday. It's for all week long. And that's exactly who we want to be, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
looking into the Scriptures. It's more than just putting your hand on top of it in public for a public statement. It's opening the Bible and putting your hands into it privately for a private moment of study and listening to God's voice and responding to His commands and His warnings and His teachings and His promises and His thoughts and His desires for you. He loves you. He's got the best for you in mind. And you have to do something about it. It's not enough to have it. It's not enough to hear it. You have to choose to let it guide your life, to be unleashed in your heart and in your home and in your work and in your play. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you're a hearer only, you're deceiving yourself. It says, make God's word count. When I was in college, I had a full load, couldn't take anymore, couldn't afford anymore, but I talked to a friend who was in an outdoor ed class, and they were going on a backpack trip up to San Gorgonio for a weekend and going to do some rock climbing, and it sounded like so much fun. I went and asked the professor, Could I, can I join that trip? And he said, no, not unless you're in the class. And then kind of as an aside, he said, well, I guess you could audit the class. So I went and signed up to audit, which didn't cost anything. And, you know, it's so cool. You don't get any credit for the class when you audit, but it's a great deal. You don't have to do any of the reading. You don't have to do any research. You don't have to take any of the tests. You don't have any of the stress and responsibility. You just come to class and listen and enjoy, and in this case, go out on a fun backpacking trip. Well, you know, when you audit, you don't have to actually, you're not responsible for anything that you're, they're trying to teach you. You don't have to remember or apply anything. Here's the problem. Sometimes people come to church to audit God. They come to audit worship. They didn't do any homework. They didn't make any advanced preparation. They come and they watch, but they don't even have a thought of applying the truth to themselves. Compare that to the student of God's Word that James lifts up. Verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves, perseveres, does it over and over and over and over, makes this a life habit. Being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James has told us that the goal is not just more Bible knowledge like the scholars that Jesus argued with, they just thought, oh, I just collect more and more and more facts about the Bible. You don't become spiritually mature by a collection of facts. You become spiritually mature by applying these things in your own life and living them, changing your life to be like Jesus, which just means to grow up, to grow up in our understanding of God and in our love of God and in our responses, regardless what life brings our way. How do we respond in a way that's godly? See, learning additional content doesn't make you spiritually mature, regardless of your age. The test of maturity is not greater knowledge. The test of true, true test of maturity is character, your character. What do you like when nobody's watching, when only God has his eye on you? And in the next couple of verses, James outlines three ways to practice, three ways to prove that we are mature in a way that pleases God. Look with me at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. James wants his readers to be doers of the Word. And he gives three examples of how to be a doer of the Word. And all these are covered later in his letter. So they must have been important. Verse 26, James says, bridle your tongue, control your mouth. Do you have control of what you say? 
Or did you ever say something and think later, why did I say that? Sure wish I could have that back. I mean, think before you speak. He actually gives most of chapter 3 to this very topic, so we'll be back to that later. And then in verse 27, he says, Religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James says, Grow a heart of compassion for those who are less fortunate than yourselves and help the helpless. And in his day, it was widows and orphans who would literally starve with nobody to care for them. In fact, in the book of Acts, when his church is just getting started and was growing like a weed, and James is the pastor, the suddenly one of the first complaints is from this group of widows that said, we're being left out. You're handing out food. We desperately need food. We're not getting our, our share, and we need help. And uh, you could read it in Acts chapter 6 because James and the apostles decided, let's get this organized. We need to be preaching the Word, reading the Word, and praying, and yet these are very important things to be done in the name of Christ. And so they named seven peoples, called them deacons or servants, who could serve others in the name of Christ. These leaders would organize others to serve so that their needs were met in Jesus' name. This left James and the apostles free to pray and to preach God's word and to grow the church. Now, whether you're praying and preaching, growing the church, uh, or caring for people's very practical needs, all of those are done in the name of Christ. They're all important, and one person cannot do it all. So the destitute for James were widows and orphans. Do you know, we have a ministry to widows. If you're new around here, it's called Gals. They named it themselves. stands for Get a Life Sister. And they gather together on a regular basis and they support one another and they care for one another and have lunch together once a month. And they're, they're a family. It's a beautiful expression of the love of Christ at work. And we also support orphans on at least two continents. In fact, our missionaries, Philip and Corrine Garrison-Smith, were just recently here, and they started by managing an orphanage in Brazil, and it has grown so that now they have multiple sites, and they have over 11,000 orphans under their care, and we support them. But there's also lots of other people that we help. I mean, probably somebody that if James were alive today, he would have included is single parents, and they could be on this list. We, we had a single mom who even right now, this week, said, I need help. I needed to find a new place to live that I can afford, start, and I have to move out by February 1st. And uh, she's looking, and we're trying to help her. And then, um, you know, many of you uh, have helped needy people who stand on the street and ask for help. And I love that you have hearts of compassion, and we give and share. If you do that to the ones who stand here in front of church, there'll be more of them. They'll keep coming. Okay. If you put it into the deacon fund, and then we have people who go out and invite those people to come in and get warm and learn their name and learn their story, and they become a person, and uh, we can talk to them about Jesus, we can pray with them, and we can also keep all of this on a little chart so that we know how much people are being helped. Is this somebody who really wants to... Uh, get help or are they just trying to game the system? And so we're trying to do it in a way that not only meets their need for today, but also introduces them to Jesus. And so uh, if you put those funds through the deacon fund, uh, it's, it's a big help uh, to, for us to be able to help them in a way that's really helpful. Do you have a heart of compassion? Do you have a caring heart? Well, come and help serve. 
That's what happened here These out of the needs. There were so many ways to serve, and, and we're trying to get better organized. It might be just standing at the door greeting and making people feel welcome or helping with the offering or helping Tandy remember or, uh, you know, um, helping serve lunch, which is going to be inside, or, or, or doing something big and scary. Um, we have a whole group that get together on Monday afternoons called the Naughty Ladies. It starts with a K. And they, they knit and they crochet uh, gloves and scarves and hats and, and mittens and things that they give to people who have cancer. And it's a beautiful thing to see. It's, it's, in other words, I wouldn't be any good in that group, you know. I don't know how to do those things. But there are a zillion ways to serve. And if, so if you say, well, I could serve. I should be doing something here for Jesus. Write it on a little card. Hand it into the usher on the way out or give it to me or email me this week. I mean, let's get you connected to other people who serve, but also serve in the way that you want to serve, because there, there are hundreds of ways that we're already, as a church, helping serve in our church and in our community. Take another peer in the mirror. How about a glance or a gaze? I mean, when you look, do you see a happy servant of Christ, a fully devoted follower? James concludes, says, keep yourself unstained from the world. Keep yourself unspotted from the world is another translation. We live in the world, but we're not of this world. And the world presses its value and its agenda and its way of thinking on us every day. And God has a better way, and we get to choose which way we're going to go. And God weighs right, but this world's way is sometimes loudest, and it's often right in our face. How do you keep yourself unstained from the world? You choose God and God's way. You fully devote yourself to Jesus Christ. And when you slip up, you receive Christ's forgiveness and you start fresh. You might have to do that every day. Get up one more time, then you fall down. So you're here today, and what did you hear? Did you hear God speak to you? Was there one thing that we mentioned? You say, there was a little twinge at that point, and God was listening. And how do you listen to God? Is God like a teacher that you didn't like or like a principal that it was hard to get along with that, you know, you needed a good grade or you needed to, uh, you know, get out of that school. And so you treated that person with a certain level of respect. Or is God like your best friend sharing lunch over the notable moments of the morning? Is God like that sheriff or highway patrolman who pulled you over? And so obviously you're going to show respect, but you really wish you weren't even talking. You hope they keep talking and just give you the lecture instead of the ticket. And as soon as you can, you get away from them. Some people treat God like that. Like, I have to deal with him, so I will show him respect, but I don't want to spend any extra time than I have to. Give me some space. Or is God your closest older friend that you can hardly wait to talk to? Claude Owens was a judge, and his reputation was that he was fair and tough and just. He was also kind and always smiling. He, he was unusual in that he started going to the First Baptist Church of Santa Ana when he was, I don't know, just a little boy, five or six years old. He met his uh, sweetheart who became his wife, and uh, he ended up being a member at First Baptist Church of Santa Ana for 80 years. And um, he died at a hundred and a half, hundred years and a half, and we celebrated his passing on his 101st birthday this last week. And the thing that they mentioned over and over and over as they reviewed 101 years 
of his life, the thing that got mentioned over and over and over was not his brilliance or his, his astuteness with the law, though those things were said, but it was his smile and his gracious way with people, that he made everybody feel like they were a VIP, that he would communicate, I care about you. And his grandchildren said the first question he'd always ask them when he saw them was, how are you doing in school? And the second question he would ask them is, how are you enjoying school? Like those might be different, different things. And he convinced every person that he had a genuine interest in them, including me. And that's not normally what you associate with a judge, is it? I mean, if you're smart when you're around a judge or a peace officer or a principal, you answer humbly and respectfully, but then you get away from them when you can. So how do you think about God? Is God this authority figure that you're trying to avoid, but you're nice to when you have to? Or is he that kind, caring, encouraging older friend that you just can't wait to talk to? James had grown up with Jesus, and he had resisted Jesus for most of his young life because he had a wrong view of Jesus. And when James finally let go of his wrong assumptions and he realized, hey, Jesus really is God and he loves me and he died on the cross for my sin, then James' life was changed forever. And it was in that transformation that he could say, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save your souls. That he was able to say, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Don't deceive yourself. That he would say, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, and is a doer who acts, he will be blessed. He's one who could say that pure religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Has your life been transformed by Jesus? And what are you going to do about it? See, I'd like to challenge you today to take some of these things and grab hold of them this week, to be in God's Word regularly, to memorize some, to, to meditate on it, to prepare for God's Word, to impact you, to prep your garden. Maybe you need to get up a little sooner or go to bed earlier on Saturday night or uh, start praying more or to journal more or to join with other people or your family in, in God's Word, to serve the Lord with gladness, to find a way to fit it into your busy schedule. Let's not just glance in the mirror. Let's gaze on the beauty of Jesus and have hearts of gratitude for a great friend he is. Let's unleash God's word into our hearts and into our church and into our world. Shall we pray? God, we thank you for Jesus, for who he is and what he's accomplished for us. We thank you that we can praise you. We thank you that we can celebrate you because you are awesome. And we thank you for what you're doing. So work in our hearts even now that we will see you for who you are, we will be in your word, and we will celebrate you with our lives. Amen.